The Planet Football Podcast is brought to you by FanDuel, the leader in one-week fantasy football with more winners and more payouts than any other site. Enter promo code PLANET at FANDUEL.com for a bonus match of up to $200. We're also sponsored by the SeatGeek app, the easiest way to find a great deal, pay for your ticket, and get to your seat. Download the SeatGeek app and enter our code PLANET for $20 off your first tickets. You know, my experience with fans has been that a lot of times they're angry on the message boards and a lot of like behind closed doors, but then face to face, they're always very kind, right? Well, this was different, okay? (laughs) So I underestimated what the energy of that was going to be. Penalty kicks get a bad rap sometimes, I think. You know, a lot of people say they're not the, the best way, the right way to settle a tie but they provide so much freaking drama. Welcome to SI's Planet Football Podcast, where each week we discuss the latest in the world of soccer. I am SI.com soccer editor Avi Creditor, joined today by SI senior writer Grant Wall and SI.com's Brian Strauss. Guys, we've had a couple of sleepless nights. MLS playoffs are absolutely bananas. Uh, Grant, how's it going? I'm doing okay. I'm, I'm rallying, a lot of coffee. Um, not used to being up as late as I've been the last few nights, but I think it's good to experience new things. <laughs> the Royals also uh, occupying your, your late night time. Crazy week. Uh, Brian, how's, uh, how's it going down in D.C.? Good. I, I was at RFK on Wednesday, and um, I'm still trying to wrap my head around the fact that a game I covered that could have gone 120 to penalties didn't. Um, but then, uh, you know, I, we, we got the payback last night with, uh, with whatever that was in Portland. Absolutely <laughs> epic, and, and uh, people will be talking about that for as long as MLS exists. Absolutely. One of the craziest uh, games, PK shootouts we've ever seen. We, uh, we will touch on that in greater detail in a little bit. We're also going to talk about Abby Wambach, uh, who announced her retirement earlier this week. But first, we have a special guest. Uh, Grant, you were able to sit down with New York Red Bulls head coach Jesse Marsh earlier this week. Uh, a really wide-ranging interview, uh, a really good interview, and, and we're going to play that for you guys right now. So we're here with Jesse Marsh of the Supporter Shield winning New York Red Bulls. Do you like the sound of that? Yeah, I would like MLS Cup a lot better, but... Yeah, Sports Shield's a big accomplishment. Congratulations on everything you've done this year, uh, coaching this team. Um, it's kind of crazy, actually, when I sat down to look at where you were at the start of 2015 with this team. And I don't think it's overselling it to call this one of the great stories in world soccer right now. Because listen to this. You started the year, you came in as a new coach, replacing a club legend, with a new GM, with a town hall meeting where season ticket holders basically had pitchforks. Uh, You'd lost Thierry Henry and Tim Cahill, this team, and you went from one of the league's highest payrolls to the league's lowest payroll, according to the Players' Union stats. And here you are. You're the Supporter Shield winners. You're the top seed in the playoffs. Best record in the regular season in the league. When you look at it in those terms, how did this happen? 
Uh, well, it, it was a daily process. You know, I do, listen, I, I don't know about world football right now, but I, I, I recognize the fact that this is a great story. I do. Um, and it's a, it's a credit to so many people. It's just, uh, I, and I guess that's where I would start is saying that, you know, when, when Red Bull first approached me and Ali Curtis first approached me, I had major, you know, I had major interests, but I also had major questions because to be honest with you, I hadn't had the greatest opinion of what had happened here for many years. And, and I questioned if whether my value system was the same as what the value system is here or was here. But, you know, when I met people like Ali Curtis and Mark de Grand Prix, and then even Oliver uh, Mitzloff and Ralph Rangnick, I started to kind of see that um, there was something that was going to, the, the movement of where this was going was different. Um, and the emphasis was going to be closer to the, to, to the value system and credo of what I am and who I am. So then I started to get excited and, and you get excited because there are so many resources here. Uh, there's uh, a great stadium, great training facility, great, uh, head count of people in different positions, a lot of experience, and so, you know, coming from what I had, been, had experienced in Montreal, where I felt like we didn't have a lot of the resources to come to a place like this, where you felt like you could have a really good working environment, meant that there was potential for success, even though uh, a lot of people had not been given ample opportunity to, to create success. Um, so, you know, that, that got me excited. Um, obviously, the way that everything first uh, started to go down and the reactions from the fans meant that it was polarizing and, 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 and entertaining. <laughs> I'll be honest, entertaining. Like there was a moment in the middle of the town hall meeting where I was just like kind of looking around going, how in the world did I get myself to this point in my life? But I did enjoy that. I did enjoy like fans getting to say what they thought and, and, and then a chance for me to say what I thought. And I think that, in that process, that was the starting point of my relationship with the fans. And then, you know, it was just a matter of now getting things going with the team. So once once I got in with the team, it was business as usual and just trying to create an atmosphere every day where everybody gave everything they had to the group. And then, you know, things grew from there. I do want to ask one specific question about this town hall meeting, because to me, this is a very unusual situation. We're not maybe used to seeing the fans... Uh, be this angry and have an opportunity to register that in a public forum where it's not scripted. Yeah. Uh, what was that like for you coming in? What do you, what do you remember most? Well, I remember them saying we're going to have a town hall meeting. And I was kind of like, all right, why? <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, my experience with fans has been that a lot of times they're angry on the message boards and a lot of... The, like behind closed doors, but then face to face, they're always very kind, right? Mm. Well, this was different. Okay. <laughs> so I underestimated what the energy of that was going to be. But as soon as I think I understood that as soon as I sat down in those chairs and I looked out there and I saw the faces, um, you know, in the end of it all, um, you know, we wound up doing a second town hall, uh, I wound up meeting a lot of these people. I've gotten face-to-face -face apologies from, I mean, I can't tell you how many apologies I've, like, that's not something you usually get as a coach, as apologies from people. Uh, but, 
you know, I mean, I think that the fans, I, I, I asked the fans to give us a chance with this team, to give this chance the team to step on the field and show what they're made of. Um, you know, I felt once we got, especially once we made a couple additions, you know, and got going and I could see the talent here, I felt like this team had something special. We could all sense it. Um, and, and I think that's the best part about what our t the identity of our team and what we've become is it's tangible. I think you can watch us play and you can see not just our style of play, but you can see our character and the identity of our mentality. And you can see a group that is a total group that gives everything they have. And it's, it's become a team that for me is really hard not to root for. Uh, so, you know, I mean, and they've, they've latched onto that. What were the most important moments in those first hundred days from your perspective to get the things going on the right foot? Well, I think that the first day that our team got together was important. You know, I mean, in the past, this team had had certain players that fly first class, certain players that had gotten rooms on their own. They stayed in certain kinds of hotels. And this team had always had all these bells and whistles and special treatment. And, and that was the first thing that I wanted to remove was any sense of that. And, and now, you know, part of being a team is truly like actually like suffering together and working together and, and that everybody's on the same level. Um, and, you know, and that, that day we had a meeting about certain things. And then that night we had another meeting and, and I sort of try started to, to map out what a work day was going to be like. And, and I used the term all in and I, and what all in meant and how you show up to work every day and how you give everything you have to the group and how you're committed to everyone, especially in the toughest moments. Um, and, you know, I could see by the looks on the faces in the guys that, that they were ready to respond to that. They were hungry for that. They needed that, you know, in a lot of ways they needed it. Um, so, you know, that was an important time. And then actually now getting into training and now, that was one thing that I knew needed to change too, is, is we created training that was fast, that was hard, that was physically demanding, that was mentally demanding. And the first few days, I think after, after like the second day of two days, some guys were looking at me like, this guy's crazy, right? But it, it was important for me to shock their systems and for, the, for me to help them understand that things were like, that they needed to expand their comfort zones, they needed to expand the way they think about the game, they needed to expand the way they train. Um, and so, you know, I mean, I think those early days set the tone for, for what this season has been and what it was going to be like. And to be fair, they, they, they haven't asked many questions. They've just, in every way, tried to figure out bigger and better ways to commit themselves to it every day. And, you know, it's helped us gain success. You created something called the Leadership Council on your team. What is that? Where did that idea come from? Well, it's um, part of it came from Jason Garrett. So he's the he's a Princeton guy mm -hmm. that you know you and I know. We both went to Princeton, um, and he's the Dallas Cowboys coach. And he is a big believer in leadership and and the molding of leadership. And he even has something back at Princeton every year that he has a special invitation to for certain coaches that. Um, he, he, he invites them to, and, and it's like a conference a little bit. He runs a clinic for the youth kids, and then he has a conference for coaches in the area. That's an invite only. I've never been invited to it, but I've only heard. <laughs> it's an invitation. Yeah, I hope I get invited sometimes. But I've only heard about some of the things that he's tried to build into what that conference is and what his team is. And one of the things that I heard was the leadership council. Now, in Montreal, I had my own version of a leadership group. I didn't call it a leadership council, but it was a group that I had of veteran players that I asked them to invest in in our identity and try to you know contribute to it. 
Um, I find that if you give players opportunity to, to invest themselves, that they take ownership. And ultimately, I've said to this team that this isn't my team, it's their team. And the more that they can take it over, the better we're going to be. They've done that over the year. And part of that has been the leadership council. And, and in that, we do everything from, you know, talk about logistics, like what is our fine system to, you know, how do, um, what do, you know, what are, how do we show up here every day? Uh, how do we travel? To then, what do they think of how we play? What do they think of how we train? What do they think of the video? What do, you know, I, I, like I want their feedback and I want them to, to now when, when we do certain things, yeah, there's, there's a way that I have to dictate exactly what we do and how we do and, and I set demands and standards. But the more that they help contribute to that, the better we're going to be. So even I have them create like a sort of set of mini goals that we wanted to achieve through the season. Mm. Um, and, you know, I gave them total ownership of that. And as the season's gone on, I think then it's helped identify and, and dictate how we play and, and certain moments, how we deal with tough moments and then how we move forward together. So uh, that's that's been the function of the leadership council. How many guys are we talking Seven about? Seven right now. Okay. You know, I mean, the, the some of the difficulties of the leadership council are, you know, you're, you're identifying who your leaders are early in the year and that can change as sure. the season goes on. Like Matt Miazga is not in that now, but I, I think that that's a place he belongs. And now as he continues to grow within our team, I think that his leadership needs to grow. So, you know, we'll see how what kind of adjustments we make for next year and, and continue to build on that. Ollie Curtis is the GM of this team. Uh, there's almost this mythical uh, stature that this 300-page manifesto uh, that he wrote has gotten. Um, I held it once. I didn't actually look at the inside. I felt like a lightning bolt would come down on my head yeah, yeah. If, I, if I did. Yeah. Um, but how much of that has actually been used? How much of that have you gone over with him? Anything in particular? That- well, some days I feel like um, that takes up a lot of our time. But <laughs> it's been really good because what it's done more than anything is help create a structure, an infrastructure yeah. of of what we want to be and how we work together and then how we communicate and what the roles are and identifying how to how to get things done and so it's you know he calls it a living document he uses a lot of these sort of corporate phrases um, but he calls it a living document and it's true it changes and it morphs daily because we need to continue to like we, we identify new issues within our scouting network or within our youth academy or within our medical team and we need to continue to mold that and, and structure that in a way so that it's as efficient as possible, it's as functional as possible, that everybody understands their roles and how to communicate with each other. And that's ultimately what, what this is about. And that's what he this is what he thinks his job is. Like, you know, it's funny, like how many different sporting directors and types of sporting directors there are in this world, right? Of, of what they think their role is. But for me, Ali and I fit really well together because he is a business guy. He's structured in the way he thinks about things. He's very organized. He creates uh, a very, there's a lot of lineage in terms of how the relationships work. And then I'm the soccer guy, right? So he kind of builds this house for me to live in and for me to grow the football within it. And then I think the two of us really complement each other really well and, and allow each other to work. Um, that's all I, that's the best thing I can say is that Ollie has really provided me with a platform. He would love that word, me using that <laughs> word. But he's provided me with a platform to do my job and, uh, and to support me in doing my job and to believe in me. And, and he, doesn't, he doesn't try to interfere. He only tries to help me th- you know, uh, do the best job I can. 
he had talked about when he took the job uh, using statistics, using analytics uh, to help build this team, this club. Um, how much are you using those types of things as a club in his position or, and also as a coach in your position? Yeah, well, I think that ultimately the, the way that we use statistics leads to how the team plays. So it winds up, um, you know, that we, we use it a lot. You know, and I believe in it. Um, we talked about how to use things early on. It's continued to, I think, build and adapt as we've gone. We work very closely, our, our staff and our team, with our, our video and data analyst. And his name's Victor Bertini, um, and he's been amazing. Um, but, you know, and Victor helps me. He helps Ali. And we all kind of cr help. What it does more than anything is it helps identify exactly what we're trying to look for, what we're trying to build into who we are, and it helps our players, I think, think about and digest how we do things. So, you know, if we say that we want to, like, it's important with the way we play to, to make the game fast and to be very active and on the move and mobile, well, then we give them standards as to, like, well, this is how much ground we cover, this is how much ground we think we need to cover, and, and in certain games, we identify where we're not covering enough ground, and sometimes we use statistics to to back up how we're feeling about what happened in certain games. And so that goes with scouting other teams, that goes with looking at what we're doing within ourselves, that looks within moments of the game, within moments in the season, you know, I mean, there's a whole way that we use statistics and data to, to support what we do here. Now, nothing replaces the ability to have the eye and the vision for exactly what's happening within the game, but we just use it to enhance their knowledge and their experience. Uh, and, you know, that, that includes what we do in training every day too, and how much they're running, how much you know, how much we train, how hard we train, what the what the times are that we train, what the distances are of the fields we use. Like, it's become pretty sophisticated, and I think it's helped us physically, specifically, uh, get our players to where they need to be at to perform. You were a player for a long time in this league. Uh, you became a coach in 2010. Uh, you were an assistant coach with the U.S. national team. Um, a head coach in Montreal in 2012. What... Did you learn that year about being a head coach that was new to you? Well, I think the biggest thing when you become a head coach is you build this, this identity up in your head of what you think you need to be. And, you know, I mean, it's not that I was... It, it, it's just that it took me a while to fully understand how to take all my leadership qualities that I had as a player and then as an assistant coach... And I think really understand how to build it into who I am and what I wanted to be as a head coach. And I think that's a big thing for any of us with any jobs we do. I mean, I, I think people who take their life and their job seriously, they try to figure out how they can get better. And for me, I always, I'm always trying to wrap my head around what, did I, what am I doing, what was good, what was bad, and how will I do it better next time, okay? And I challenge our staff to do that. I challenge our team to do that. Um, I challenge our organization to think like that. And, and there are a lot of like-minded people here in that sense. But who I am now, I think, is, is a lot closer to just being me than what I thought I needed to be, hmm. if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And not that I was putting on an act, but I just took me, it took experience for me to understand fully what my, how to mold my leadership as a head coach. Then when you're put in a situation where you're an expansion team, you have an organization that has a hard time believing in anything outside of themselves. 
and you're not in a position where you can actually just focus on doing the job, but you have to include all this other noise and, and, and distractions means that it was a very difficult situation. But my time when I stepped away, you know, I took the trip around the world. I spent some time as an assistant in college. It helped me, I think, recenter to who I am and who I want to be. Um, and then I've been able to apply it to this time around in a sense of just being a lot more at ease and more confident and more capable in a lot of my abilities. So. I don't know how many people know this, that you and your family took this long around the world trip after you left Montreal. Yeah. What was that about? What did you do? Six months um, backpacking with three children, ages 11, 9, and 5. Um, you know, we went Southeast Asia. We were there for about two, about three months. India and Nepal for about a month. Middle East for about a month. And then Europe for about a month and a half. Uh, it's funny because in, in those first three segments of the trip, we felt like Indiana Jones. And then we went from Jerusalem to Rome and we felt like the Griswolds. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, I mean, it was wonderful. I mean, it was time that you, you know, in this job, you sometimes get so wrapped up in, and, and all, of, all of us fathers and husbands, we sometimes get so wrapped up in, in our work that we lose track of, you know, how, how things are developing with our families and, and that getting that balance right is so important. And you realize, like I'm realizing now, like the, the, the kids just get fast so quickly. They get old so quickly and, you know, there's certain time that you can't get back. Well, I, I'm, that's the, I think one of the proudest things I've ever done in my life is my wife and I making this decision to take six months and spend totally with our family and dedicate to our family. And, and it was amazing. The experiences were amazing. The time we spent together was phenomenal. It helped me personally and it helped me professionally. So. And then you worked as an assistant at your own water, Princeton. Yeah. For a little while. Yeah. What went into that? Well, you know, we knew we didn't want to live in Montreal. We had certain struggles there with what living in that community was, and we knew we wanted to come back to the States. A friend of mine invested in a house in Princeton, and it was vacant, so we decided to move into it. And, and you know, we heard great things about the schools, and then I kind of figured, well, I'll check in with the coach there and see if I can volunteer with him. And, and to be honest with you, I thought, like, I thought I'd maybe be out of a job for, like, three, four months, you know, but, and that's part of the reason why we came back on the trip. Like if I knew that it was going to be a little bit longer, I might've stayed longer on the trip because we really enjoyed it. But I waited another year and a half, you know, and I spoke with a lot of different organizations and got turned down and was just waiting for my opportunity. But in the meantime, the job there at Princeton kept me going. And I think it kept me sharp, kept me on the field, kept me thinking about things in big ways. And, and then, you know, adjusting everything to who I am and what I wanted to be. And, and so that come the next time I was given an opportunity, I was ready to go. And a lot of people may have looked at it as like, you know, a step down or, but there's always little things you can pick up and there's always little things you can learn. And with that team, we built in so many different things and, and I was learning there every day. And, and the coach was just fantastic at not being threatened by having me around and, and letting me be who I am. And, and I think that, you know, in all ways, we all benefited from it, and, and it was a great experience. So I'm very thankful for, to Jimmy Barlow and the Princeton soccer program for, for allowing me to help contribute there, and, and it's made me better for, for where I'm at now. This is probably a pretty good time for full disclosure on this podcast. Jesse and I went to Princeton together, uh, graduated the same year, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Class of 96, uh, and uh, I covered him for the Daily Princetonian. Um, Way, way back in the yeah, day. Yeah, you were the editor by your senior year. You were kind of big time. 
A little. I remember you sort of removing yourself from soccer. Because you too, cool, too cool for a soccer guy. drag me back in. Yeah, yeah. But uh, the coach back in those days was a guy named Bob Bradley. Um, and uh, obviously had uh, a big influence on, on your career. Uh, had a big influence on my career, too, actually. I bet. You know, with me yeah. uh, getting into soccer and, and making it what I covered. Um, now, he happened to have been, as I recall, one of the people you saw on your Around the World trip because he was in Egypt mm -hmm. at that time yeah. uh, doing pretty incredible things yeah. with the Egyptian national team. Um, and I know that your career has been tremendously influenced by him, but you are not him. And I'm curious to know from your perspective what you see of Bob and what you do and, and in what ways you're different. Yeah, I mean, you know, that a lot of people have asked me about Bob. You know, you mentioned that, you, you know, he, he had an impact on you. And I think that's the, that's the kind of person Bob is, is he's a mentor, you know. And it's not just his family. It's not just his players. It's not just his – it's everything. It's his friends. It's his, it's his brothers. It's, he's that kind of guy. He's just the kind of guy that, that I think is such a good man that everybody can learn something from him. Um, you know, and I mean, I think that he – he had an influence on me in that way is kind of realizing what kind of man did I want to be, not just what kind of player or what kind of coach, but, but what kind of man did I want to become? And, and, you know, I mean, it's gotten to, he and I went through so many different stages. I said, you know, he was my, he was my coach. Then he was like my father. Then he was like my boss. And then he's become my friend, you know? And, and, and that's the way I look at it now is like our relation is a, a relationship is, is, is a great one. And that's of give and take and friendship, you know? Uh, but, you know, I mean, he, he's had a huge influence on me in terms of what I think leadership is, um, you know, what I think a work ethic is, what I think a work day is, what I think a, a soccer team is, you know? But we're, we're, we're different now in, in the ways that, that, you know, our personality kind of inf infuses itself into a team. You know, I think I'm more gregarious, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, but that being said, Bob's changed a lot over the years. But when I first met him, he was like one of the most serious guys oh, I'd yeah. ever met, you know, and, and in that way, he becomes very intimidating. Whereas I think I'm much more approachable and I try to be as approachable as I can be because I, I really want to have open arms in the way that I deal with people. Not that Bob's arms are closed, even though they are often closed. <laughs> uh, you know, and then, and then, I mean, our football, uh, you know, I mean, I've gotten a lot of my football ideals from him, but I think mine have now changed over time. And, 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 um, and I've created kind of my own innovative identity as to where things are going. And I think he's got his own way of doing things. And, and now, like, when we talk about teams and, and players, and we have a lot of good discussions about what he thinks and what he tries to get out of his team and what I think and what I try to get out of my team. And so he continues to be an incredible resource and an incredible friend and, and a guy that I think um, keeps, keeps me on my toes and challenges me. Can you do a Bob Bradley impression? I can do a lot of them. I'm not going to. <laughs> but that was always one of the things I said when we won MLS Cup is I would always do my Bob impersonation. So if we win the Cup okay. this year, maybe you'll see Bob show up. I will the... remember this. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um... One question that a lot of the fans here have had is uh, about the owners of this team in Austria uh, with Red Bull. And the indication I've gotten from you, and we've talked this year, is that they're more engaged than maybe people realize. Yeah. In what ways? 
Well, first of all, I think Oliver Mitzloff is a big presence here. Uh, he's here at least once a month. Um, you know, he's around with our team and and he's constantly getting to know us and seeing what we're doing. I think they're very proud of what we've accomplished over there. Um, you know, so he he's trying in every way to figure out how to support us. We have access to their scouting network. We have access to medical records. We have access to medical equipment. Uh, we have access to um, coaches. Uh, we have access to video. We, uh, you know, so there's a lot of shared resources going on now. Mr. Mattaschutz, okay, watches down the stretch here. I think he's watched every one of our last probably 10 games at like 2 o'clock in the morning. And Oliver will send me texts that he's getting from Mr. Mattaschutz. Oliver checks in with me before every game and tells our team, you know, wishes our team good luck. Um, you know, there's a there's a symmetry with how we play, with how the teams in Red Bull and Europe play. So it's not totally the same, but there are similarities to to now the style of play that we play and the style of play that they play. And that's one of the reasons why I think I'm here is because, you know, when they first met me, they could see, you know, Ali and I think the people, Oliver, they could see that the way that I wanted to play the game and the way I wanted this team to play fit with some of the things that they're trying to accomplish in Europe. So we have a lot of, you know, Ralph's been an influence on me. He's a very smart soccer guy. He shared a lot of his tactical concepts with me. He shared some of his ways of thinking about the game. They fit very seamlessly with the way that I think about things. So in all ways, this thing continues to evolve to include, you know, everything that that Red Bull Global is about. Um, you know, and I think as time goes on, and, and, and with that, I have to say also resources. I mean, like actually financial resources. So I know there's been a lot of talk about our payroll of our team, which I, I don't like to hear because I think our team is one of the most talented teams in the league. We just haven't spent, I almost said wasted, <laughs> but we haven't spent big millions of dollars on one, two, three players. You know, we've tried to kind of spread the wealth and like create a real deep team. So anyway, I think that that's going to continue to grow. We're building more here at the training facility. We're adding more to what's going on at the stadium. We're continuing to, to build into the resources of what the experience of being a player and a, and a coach here is every day. So um, that part's actually been really uh, invigorating, right? I mean, it's, it's, this thing is so much more than one person and, and one team, it's it's about kind of all this coming together and, and now creating an identity within the Red Bull brand. You've been in this league for a while. You've experienced playoffs as a player. Um, what is different about the playoffs in MLS? What is different from the regular season that you have to keep in mind? Well, the biggest thing for us is there's now this built-in perceived success and I'm not saying that we haven't been successful with winning the Supporters Shield, but if we allow ourselves one second to be satisfied with that, we're going to slip up. Um, and in MLS, the playoffs come and, you know, I mean, okay, there's the play-in game versus having a seed and resting, but you could argue that can go either way. Essentially, everyone starts from scratch and no one has a real advantage. The only advantage we really have is once we get to MLS Cup, if we get to MLS Cup, because then we get to host it. But until then, we're on the even playing field with every single team in the East. So it's a six-dog race right now. And I say dog race because it's a dog fight. And that's the way the East is. And, I mean, playoffs are like that in general, but the East happens to have a lot of teams that have grit, that have uh, uh, heart, and, and now 
put everything they have into every game and see where the chips fall. So we have to now meet that kind of uh, physical and athletic standard in the way that we approach our games and then hope that once games settle down and once we get games back at Red Bull Arena, that we can really put them on our terms and play the way we want to play. But that may mean that we go on the road and the whole game doesn't settle down and we just have to fight and claw for everything that we get just to earn the chance to give ourselves a chance back at Red Bull Arena. So um, we'll see. We'll see, man. Do you like the playoff structure in MLS? It's so hard to say. I mean, the, the only thing that I would argue is that the teams that have a good regular season aren't rewarded enough, you know? Um, but that's life. Um, <laughs> and I think that the league has tried really hard to um, adapt and, and sort of change as we've gone and what the structure of the playoffs is so that it's exciting for the fans. It's, you know, it's exciting for the teams and there's a lot of energy and, and twists and turns into what these matchups are. So you can't argue with the excitement of what was going on last year in the playoffs. And so I guess from a bystander uh, perspective that it's been good, but you know, I, I wish we had a little bit more of an advantage. <laughs> Jesse Marsh, good luck in the playoffs. Thanks for talking to Sports Illustrated. All right, Grant. Good to see you, my man. Sports have become a huge aspect of our collective culture. It's the one weekly live event that you can't stream later or watch on demand with the same effect. This desire to be part of a collective action is one reason fantasy sports has grown so much. But a lot of people don't play because the whole season is too long of a commitment. FanDuel changes all of that. And if you've ever wanted to try it out, use our code PLANET at FANDUEL.com for a bonus match of up to $200. Here's what FanDuel is all about. It's daily fantasy sports where you can win cash and there's no waiting for payment. Winners get paid the same night of their victory. There's no long drafts, and you can pick your team in minutes with the salary cap format. There are thousands of open leagues every day in the NFL, NBA, MLB, or NHL. There's no season-long commitment, and league entries start at just $1. Over 1 million players have won money playing fantasy sports on FanDuel, and now it's your turn. If you love watching games, FanDuel ups the ante and adds a whole new dimension to the fan experience. So go to FanDuel.com and click on the microphone in the upper right-hand corner, use our code PLANET, and sign up now. There's a special offer for new users. For every dollar you deposit, FanDuel will match it with up to 200 bucks that gets earned as you play. That's a bonus of up to $200. The offer is only good for the first 50 people that use our code PLANET today, so don't get left out. FanDuel, where every day is a new season. That's F-A-N-D-U-E-L.com. Try it out today. All right. Welcome back, uh, Grant. That was fantastic. Such a good, uh, wide-ranging and, and really thoughtful interview with, with Jesse Marsh. And and to be honest, I'm just really happy that he was way more uh, outgoing and open with you uh, as opposed to, to the last time you guys spoke. Well, what about the thoughts of the coach, Jesse Marsh, downstairs with Grant? Jesse, I got to ask real quick, what was said between you and Ben Olsen there? Nothing. All right. He, he was a bit more open, wasn't he? <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh man sorry <laughs> <laughs> i should say this because this didn't come up during the podcast jesse marsh and i spent about a week in the infirmary at princeton together in 
uh, I think it was 1994 during the Winter Olympics, because uh, we watched the Winter Olympics together. It was uh, the worst case of mono that they had ever seen at the Princeton Infirmary I, that I had. And I think Jesse had food poisoning or something. And so we just sort of hung out, uh, got to know each other uh, a little bit better. I'd covered him for the soccer team. But uh, at that point in time, had no idea that uh, he would become a professional player and coach. Uh, I had no idea I would end up covering soccer for a living. Uh, it, uh, it's kind of a good memory, except for the being sick part. Well, uh, we'll get into the how you got mono story next week. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, let's, let's spin it back to the field. Um, Jesse Marshall's team will take on, on DC United, one of four conference semifinal pairings uh, in MLS. The others, uh, Montreal Impact, Columbus Crew, Seattle Sounders, FC Dallas, and Portland Timbers, Vancouver Whitecaps. About those Portland Timbers, uh, one of the most ridiculous uh, endings to a game, uh, the game itself, packed of drama, Portland Sporting Kansas City. They go 11 rounds in PKs. It comes down to the goalkeepers. In between all of that, Sporting Kansas City has a chance to win twice. They hit the post on one effort and then both posts on another effort, right? Three posts on two kicks to win it. Ellis for semifinals. He's missed it off the post. Abdul Salam. Oh, are you kidding me? Double posting now. What the hell? <laughs> How many games have we seen in our lifetimes? And this is a reminder that you see stuff you've never seen before in the most dramatic and pressure-packed of moments. Uh, I, I can't believe it happened, and, and it happened, you know? We're always going to look back at this game and remember the time that it went 11 rounds and the goalkeepers ended up deciding it on penalties and... Uh, and even just to get to the penalties, you know, Portland looked like they were done. And, you know, they go down in extra time on a terrific goal by Christian Namath. Uh, and then Portland pulls one out of nowhere uh, to send it to penalties and, and the craziness that followed. Matt Beasler tried to Panenka. No one's going to be talking about that. But, like, what, what was that? <laughs> that, that? That one round of, of the shootout uh, where Jack Jewsbury hit his penalty into the Pacific Ocean <laughs> and that Beasler tried the worst Penenka I've ever seen. Uh, just sort of added, it, it added to the lunacy of, of, of the whole affair. I mean, obviously for me, it brought back, just watching uh, on TV, it brought back memories of the, of the 2013 MLS Cup Final at, at, at Sporting Park um, and how many twists and turns there were in that shootout. Uh, Graham Zussi could have won it uh, in, the, in the fifth round but missed uh, Sebastian Velasquez could have won it for Real Salt Lake, uh, but missed. Um, and then you had uh, Aurelian Collin, you know, score the winner. And then obviously last night, um, Ellis and Abdul Salam both with chances, with chances to win the game, with chances to put his team through, missed penalties uh, facing the Timbers Army. Um, you know, I, I had the SPKC tweet all ready to roll. Um, just because Sporting's been so deadly in shootouts. They won the 2012 Open Cup on penalties. They won this year's Open Cup on penalties. So, you know, I, I, I've never believed that shootouts are a lottery. I, I believe there is something there is something to it. But also, unless you're Germany, you're not guaranteed to win all of them. And, and, and you know, they, they were due to lose, and it happened. Yeah, uh, although the 7-10 split that Abdul Salam hit uh, <laughs> on, on either of those posts, that, that thing literally stayed on the line. It could have bounced in it could have gone off out off the goalkeeper off of Quarse. 
how physically it seemed impossible. Uh, well, Quarse was was jumping off his line a little bit. I actually wondered if you you know if the refs were kind of watching to make sure that he was leaving uh, when he was supposed to. But he was lucky in that sense because if he had sort of stayed closer to his line or dove, it may have hit him and bounced in. Um, <laughs> so he was actually it was actually a good thing he was six yards out of his goal when that ball went across the line. Um, yeah, it's just 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 absurd and and um, and Portland is a. Portland's on a bit of a roll. I mean, they ended the the, the regular season well. I mean, they they, they crushed the Galaxy uh, in mid October. Um, you know, they they won at Salt Lake. Um, they're they're a they're still a, a bit of a tough team to figure out for me. Um, but they're they're fun to watch, and they have players that that really are good on the ball, um, that take space well, that go at defenders, that create. Um, you know, and and uh, they're a threat. I mean, I, I think that series against Vancouver, you're going to see a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of back and forth. Um, you know, you're going to see two teams going at each other. I think it's going to be a good one. Absolutely. I, uh, all three Cascadia teams uh, in the Western Conference semifinals, I think that's going to be something that's uh, going to make for great theater, if if nothing else. Um, one final thing on that game, Sport of Kansas City's goalkeeper, John Kempen. I mean, he comes in in extra time cold. Like, uh, you know, Tim Lee had to take himself out with a head injury, which thankfully uh, he he did for, for his own health reasons. Um he comes in cold. He made three saves in the PK shootout. He was great. And then, unfortunately for him, I mean, the only thing people remember is that it was his PK grant that that was saved. Yeah, just so much drama in this. And and you know, sometimes we see this happen where the second that you saw the the reserve goalkeeper come into the game, I, I'm thinking, whoa, if this goes into penalties, this is going to be an amazing story. And it does go into penalties. He makes three saves, uh, and then he has to take a spot kick with the game on the line. And Corsi, the other goalkeeper, has already made his, and Corsi makes a save. Uh, and so, yeah, John Kempen, buddy, uh, don't be too down, man, because that was uh, a heck of a performance, uh, Kansas City kid, uh, and and yet just part of the, the craziness surrounding this game that, uh, you know, penalty kicks get a bad rap sometimes, I think, because... You know, a lot of people say they're not the the best way, the right way to settle a tie, but they provide so much freaking drama, <laughs> and and I'm okay with that. I'm trying to think of a crazier penalty shootout that I've ever seen, and I, and I don't think I can. I mean, there was like Liverpool and Middlesbrough last year in the League Cup Length. went like 30 rounds or something, but there was also some of the worst penalties right. you've ever seen taken. Well, there were some bad penalties last night. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> bad penalties. <laughs> If, as if that was the only ridiculous game in the last two nights. Uh, every uh, one of the other three games, you could argue, had had its fair share of of drama, storylines, insanity. Uh, you go to the the all Canadian clash between Montreal and Toronto. Montreal three goals in the first half and and really put their foot on on Toronto's throat. You, you know, you look at that game, you you don't necessarily see drama, but you see this was Toronto FC's first playoff game in nine years, and it lasted 40 minutes before they were done. Uh, and and Montreal now all of a sudden has the look of a, of a team that could make a run. You look at Seattle, LA, what, four goals in the first 22 minutes, a, a fifth that was waved off from, from offside, and then Seattle finally gets past the LA hump after being eliminated by the Galaxy three times, and then D.C. United, New England. Penalty drama at the end. Jermaine Jones uh, going at Mark Geiger for the second time this year. 
and then thanking the parody Twitter account of Adrian Heath for ah. his support in the aftermath. Uh, and DC United prevailing. Um, guys, say what you want about six teams being in from each conference, but these wildcard games have been unbelievable. They really have, and, and this is something I look forward to the MLS playoffs every year because I understand the, the complaint that the regular season doesn't matter enough, but, man, the playoffs matter. And the stuff that we're seeing in these one-game elimination games, uh, it's, it's fantastic. Uh, and there, there's so much going on. My personal favorite moment, Eric Freeberg's post-game interview with the Spanish amazing. language channel in which he said, I don't speak Spanish. And she goes, but I'm speaking to you in English. Um, but it was, it was a, a, he said it with a smile. It, it, it was just fantastic. Um, and you know, just sort of like the, the U.S. soccer community watching these games and, and talking about it on Twitter and, and the shared experience, uh, it's been a blast, you know, uh, you know, late into the evening. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, it, is, it is a lot of fun. Um, I, I still think that MLS doesn't need to undercut the regular season as much as it does. That being said, I love playoffs as a concept. Um, and, uh, and yeah, they were amazing. I mean, I, I can't – the words don't do the, the, the atmosphere or lack thereof at RFK after Agadello <laughs> scored on that bike. It, it was it, – all of the oxygen was like vacuum-sucked out of it was like it was like the big like it was mega made from space balls you know and what like <laughs> i know exactly what you're talking about that's a great reference okay <laughs> um no usually i mean we've all been in press boxes right and 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 again there's no there's no cheering there's no whooping but there's gasp there's reaction i mean when something when 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 mexico scored the winner at the rose bowl everyone in the press box is like whoa you know they're like there's just a it's a reflex reaction it was silent in the press box when 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 agadello scored the stadium you could hear the cheering on the revs bench Everything was just quiet. No one could believe what they'd seen. It was just an astonishing, amazing piece of skill to see live. Uh, and then DC's response. I mean, I missed the the Seattle game because I was, you know, downstairs at RFK and then and then writing. Um, and again, sorry, Avi, dealing with computer issues. But um, <laughs> but uh, the the way DC responded um, was also just really fun and 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 a pleasure to behold both teams going at each other. So yeah, I think the drama is wonderful. Um, but I think uh, it's a shame, for example, that Dallas and New York, after uh, having the seasons they've had, have to go on the road to start the playoffs and get nothing even resembling any sort of home field advantage until MLS Cup. All right. Before we, we wrap up on, on MLS playoff talk, uh, Rapid Fire, I want to get your thoughts uh, on the, the upcoming matchups. Brian, let's start with you in the, the Eastern, Con- Eastern Conference, DC United. New York Red Bulls, you'll be at the first leg down at, at RFK. Uh, it's a rivalry bout. Red Bulls are Supporter Shield winners. DC, uh, arguably the weakest team left in the field. But what, what do you what do you think? Yeah, I'm excited. It's it's Red Bulls DC. It's uh, it's MLS tradition. Twenty years of this. It's going to be fun. Um, you know, New York certainly the favorite and and a team that's had DC's number this year with two heavy wins at Red Bull Arena. So it's going to be absolutely critical for uh, for DC to get some kind of result on Sunday at RFK to sort of stay alive in this series. Um, in the other one, Montreal, you know, I, I think this team is reaching back to where they were in, 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 in the spring uh, with this run through CONCACAF. Um, they, are, they are solid. They are tough to break down. 
Um, and now with Drogba up top, uh, you know, they've got a guy who can who can create the chance, finish the chances uh, that they create. And, and they're they're just a, a sound knockout team. I really like the Columbus crew, though. They're dynamic. They're fun to watch. What Finley and Merrim give them uh, in attacking from from withdrawn positions is exciting. Uh, Higuain's still an elite playmaker. Kai Kamara is going to be back. Uh, you know, is a great finisher. So I'm leaning toward the crew in this series, but I think it's going to be a good one. That's probably the toughest one to call, honestly, in, in the bunch. I mean, two teams who are playing well and, and when they're at their best are very good teams. Uh, Grant, let's go to the Western Conference. Seattle Sounders, FC Dallas, number one seed, FCD. I don't know that they're getting a whole lot of respect, especially with Seattle coming off this win over, over LA, but how do you see this one shaking out? Well, it sounds crazy to say this because they are hardly the top seed, but I think this is Seattle's Western Conference to win uh, here, and and I think that for a few reasons. I I think there's as good a seasons as Dallas and Vancouver have had, there's still quite a bit of doubt about how they'll perform in the playoffs, and I think to erase that, they're just going to have to go out and win. But right now, you look at Seattle uh, having exercised their demons against L.A., uh, beating them for the first time in the playoffs, really sort of clearing the way a little bit. Uh, for a real opportunity for Seattle to get to its first MLS Cup final and win its first MLS Cup. I think Seattle, when it's at full strength, is the best team in the West. Uh, I think Clint Dempsey is a big game player. We're seeing that again. Um, and so I think they're going to take Dallas uh, you know, in this conference semifinal. Uh, I think Vancouver-Portland's going to be a fantastic matchup. I think Carl Robinson has done a, a terrific job as the coach in Vancouver, put them in a really good spot. They have the bye going for them. Portland's playing on three days rest uh, after 120 minutes and 11 rounds of penalties. And yet I still give the edge to Portland in this one. Uh, I think they're in good form lately. Uh, we mentioned all the road wins they'd had recently. We forgot to mention they won at Columbus too. I mean, this is right. a good Portland team right now. Darlington Nagby, uh, at least in the first 90 minutes, uh, against Kansas City, who was a real influential player, especially when he gets into the open field. Uh, I, I like Portland uh, and Seattle getting to the final. Uh, and then, you know, I'm going to go with Seattle getting to the MLS Cup final. Uh, right now, again, though, the quadruple header on Sunday, D.C. United, New York Red Bulls, Montreal Impact, Columbus Crew, Seattle Sounders, FC Dallas, Portland Timbers, Vancouver Whitecaps. Get your popcorn ready. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. And then come back, finish up talking about Abby Wambach. There's so much happening in the world of sports between the MLS playoffs, the Mets and Royals in the World Series, and the return of pro basketball and the NHL. Whatever your game, SeatGeek has you covered for the best deals on tickets. Now, when you use the SeatGeek app to find your great deal and use our code PLANET, SeatGeek will send you a check for $20. Here's how it works. You download the SeatGeek app on your iPhone or Android. It's free and takes less than a minute to download. Then you search for your event, find a great deal, enter our code PLANET, and when you complete your purchase, SeatGeek will send a $20 check to your house. It's that easy. SeatGeek is paying you to use their service. SeatGeek pulls in ticket options from hundreds of sellers online and shows you the best deals automatically. When you shop on SeatGeek, you're seeing virtually every ticket option available all on one page. They also have a feature called Deal Score. It ranks every ticket on the market with a value score and plots the best deals on a color-coded map of the venue. Finally, SeatGeek's mobile app makes the ticket buying process seamless, easy, and safe. On SeatGeek, you can store your credit card, and once you find a ticket you want to buy, you can make the purchase with two quick taps of your phone. There's no faster way to buy tickets. So, to redeem your promo code and get your $20 check, 
Download the free SeatGeek app today. Enter our code PLANET in the app, and SeatGeek will then send you $20 once you've made your first SeatGeek purchase. For tickets to the MLS playoffs, the NFL, or even the World Series, use the SeatGeek app and our code PLANET to save $20. Speaking of the World Series, our colleagues Ted Keith and Steve Canella have an essential show for baseball fans, The Strike Zone. You'll hear expert analysis from the whole team of SI baseball writers all World Series long. Search The Strike Zone on iTunes or visit si.com slash podcasts. All right, guys, I want to finish uh, up with some talk about Abby Wambach, U.S. Women's National Team uh, legend, announced her retirement uh, this week. She will play out the victory tour with the United States and then wrap up December 16th at the Superdome in New Orleans. Uh, Going to be a, a nice ticket to get if you if you can get it. 184 goals and counting right now. She could definitely add a few more against Trinidad and Tobago and China. You guys have covered literally her entire career. Brian, you, you covered her early days down in Washington, and then both of you over the course of her her national team career, uh, which which was capped with the World Cup this past summer. Brian, I want to start with you, uh, just recalling the early days of, of Abby Wambach and, and what you saw from her down there. Uh, I was a young reporter, and uh, she was a young player, and I don't think either of us really knew what we were doing. <laughs> <laughs> and um, she joined the Washington, the Washington Freedom were the I think we're the worst team in the WSA that first year, um, and or, or the second worst. I, I think they drafted Abby Wambach second in the draft. So uh, Abby came in with a lot to prove. I mean, she 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 was on the very very fringes of the, of the U.S. national team programs. Um, she'd been cut uh, from a Nordic Cup team, a, a junior Nordic Cup team, and she didn't have good habits. And she was she was big and strong and a good athlete, and sort of just rode that. Um, didn't didn't really know how to be a professional uh, and admitted that. Um, and there was there wasn't you you the cool thing is you saw her career could have gone either way at that point. She was never inevitable. Um, and she made the decision. she she applied herself in, in a way that created what we're now what we're now kind of celebrating. Um, and, and I just that that's my my recollection is that it it could have gone either way with her and she decided at some point, uh, that she was going to put everything she had into being a pro. And, and, and I think part of her legacy, you know, she, people are complex and legacies are complex. And I think part of, uh, part of her legacy is going to be sort of her, her strange approach to the, to, to, to the club game as she got older. Obviously, her, her uh, affiliation and support for Dan Borislow with WPS and then the fact she didn't want to play in the NWSL this year and all that kind of stuff. And it's a bit of an irony because without – the WSA and without the Washington Freedom, she may never have gone to a Women's World Cup. Um, it was only her performance with the Freedom that convinced a very skeptical April Heinrichs uh, to bring Abby into the national team fold. Um, and so, and then once she got there, of course, we, we've seen what happened. She she is uh, she, she she was an unstoppable force for a really long time. She really sort of altered the way the women's national team played uh, in order to make use of her skills. Her effort was legendary. She was, she was covered in mud and grass every game. <laughs> she threw herself in there, and she was incredibly clutch. I mean, I, I pulled this stat out. Um, she scored 11 goals in the knockout rounds of, of Women's World Cups or Olympics, um, 23 goals overall in major tournaments. I'm not saying it in any way she was a better player than Mia Hamm. Mia Hamm had twice as many assists as Abby, but Mia scored – only 13 goals in, in major tournaments and only two in knockout round matches. 
So that's not to denigrate Mia, but it's just to say how clutch Abby was, how many big goals she scored. Uh, obviously, the winner in the in the 2004 Olympics, that famous goal against Brazil in the Women's World Cup, um, she, she transformed herself from someone who could have gone either way uh, to to perhaps the most clutch player in American soccer history. So uh, I think that's a neat I think that's a neat trajectory for her. Absolutely. Uh... Grant, you, you've spent a lot of time with Abby, especially in, in recent years. Wrote a great magazine feature uh, about her before the Women's World Cup, just about everything kind of that she's she's been through and, and what she put into to this past summer. Um, and and now her career is coming to an end. I just what what are your thoughts on on her as a, as a whole and and just what you've seen in, in your time with her? A few different thoughts came into my head when she announced her retirement the other day. One was just being in the stadium for some of her most amazing moments. Uh, so the 2004 Olympic gold medal game when she scores the, the gold medal winning goal in extra time that sent out Mia Hamm and Julie Foudy and Joy Fawcett uh, you know, at the end of their careers as winners. Uh, you know, just a big-time player. Uh, another moment, obviously, uh, you know, being in Dresden in 2011 uh, for the World Cup quarterfinal against Brazil, where the U.S. was dead and buried in that game. And in the 122nd minute, with the U.S. down a player, uh, Wambach scoring on a Hail Mary from, from Megan Rapinoe, uh, one of the great goals in, in U.S. history, one of the, the great highlights we've ever seen, uh, which I think I wrote this for SI. I, I think it turned around women's soccer in many ways in this country. If you look before that goal, um, that 5,000 people coming to every home game, and it's three or four times that now. It's been completely different ever since. Um, and then being in the stadium in Red Bull Arena when she broke Mia Hamm's all-time scoring record internationally, uh, when it was so clear that her teammates were trying to get her the ball <laughs> against South Korea, but in, she was finishing and just... Uh, you realize, like, she's going to break the record tonight, and she did, and just uh, the classy way in which she handled it. Um, you know, this week when the team visited the White House, President Obama had this money quote where he said, uh, you know, you guys have shown playing like a girl means you're a badass. And badass is the first term I think of when I think of Abby Wambach, just the way she played the game. Um you know, she defined, she like adopted the headed goal as her thing and her signature, scoring goals with her head. Uh, but she was also willing to put her head in some very risky, dangerous positions to get to balls. And she scared the crap out of defenders <laughs> around the world. And, and so um, a, a truly badass career. And uh, I thought she handled things well at the World Cup this year when she wasn't starting uh, every game. Uh, still was a useful player for the team. Uh, very honest interview. Uh, I've enjoyed interviewing Abby Wambach over the years. Sometimes too honest for her own good. Uh, you know, getting her in trouble with FIFA or who, whomever. But you knew you were getting unfiltered, Abby. Um, and so, just a, a lot of admiration for for what she's accomplished. And, and I've talked to her about you know, what she wants to do eventually. She doesn't know. She's honest about this. Uh, we'll see what she ends up doing. But I, I think it'll be productive. Uh, I think it'll be good for soccer. Uh, and I look forward to seeing what comes next from Abby Wambach. Absolutely. Um, I think she hit, she hit me one time. I can't tell you how strong she was. <laughs> what were the circumstances? <laughs> she, she, um, I, she used to live near she when she played for the freedom uh there was a, a period where she lived in my neighborhood and i was just 
going for a run. Like I was, pl- I was playing, still playing seriously at the time, and would go for runs like in between games and stuff, and and was was running through my neighborhood and rounded a corner, and she was standing on the sidewalk, and she she saw me, she yelled my name. I'll never forget it. She Strauss. She yelled my name, and she gave me like like the the two the two handed like chest kind of pound like straight into my chest and it, it knocked me into a wall i mean i'm not it, it took it took a breath out of me she was really really strong and i was totally unprepared for it and and i can see why she abused uh and and had her way with so many defenders over the years she was so solid and and just everything was enthusiasm and she just yelled and hit me and uh yeah it took me aback it uh i don't remember anything that happened afterwards I may have just stumbled away and not said anything. <laughs> you got uh, you got a lane from Seinfeld, dude. Yes, yeah, perfect. perfect. <laughs> wow, uh, I think I saw a stat. Um, I'm pretty sure it was Paul Carr from ESPN, the stat guru. They got over there. That was that was something along the lines of Abby Wambach's head would be like the fifth highest goal scorer of all time, which uh, is to say nothing for for the other goals that she scored. Um, one other thing that Obama said during uh, during his remarks at the White House, he praised Becky Sauerbrunn for her quiet quiet leadership and, and dominance, and then Abby Wambach for her not so quiet leadership and, <laughs> and dominance. And, uh, and that was spot on. I mean, she's she's so vocal, so loud, um, and and such a, a big leader for for this team, which is undergoing some changes now. A lot of players uh, being ushered out: Lauren Holiday, Lori Kolopny, um Shannon Box, and and now Abby Wambach. It's to say nothing of Christy Rampone. We don't know what's going on uh, with with her. Um, and I think Grant, the, the way you said it though, is this was the, the perfect time for, for her to go out. The Olympics are coming up and maybe she would not have been part of that team. And that's not how you want her final act to be remembered and, and finishing off this victory tour and riding out into the sunset. Perfect. She goes out winning a world cup, uh, which is a pretty good way to go out, I would say. And, uh, you look ahead to the Olympics. It's an important tournament next summer. Only 18 players on the roster is allowed compared to 23 for the World Cup. So uh, I think this is also a good move for the future of U.S. women's soccer that uh, you're going to see maybe a new face or two in that uh, in that roster. You kind of hope you do, you know, at least Crystal Dunn, but like some others too. And we're starting to see some other new players called in. And I think, um, yeah, this saves us from maybe uh, a controversy uh, that would have been brewing over the next several months of, you know, should Abby Wambach be part of the team? Does she deserve it? Is she going to play club ball? We don't have to have that conversation now, and we can talk about what an amazing career she had. Absolutely, and uh, I think that's a good way to, to cap it. An amazing career. Abby Wambach, congratulations. And we will see what happens next with the U.S. women's national team. Uh, I think that's going to do it for us, guys. That was great. I want to thank Jesse Marsh uh, for, for sitting down with you, Grant. That was a fantastic interview. MLS playoffs. Uh, first legs on Sunday, then the following leg the week after, and we will definitely be talking about those first legs next week. So thanks all for listening. For Grant Wall, Brian Strauss, our producer Alex Abnos, I am Avi Creditor. We'll talk to you guys next week. Do you know about the Locked On Podcast Network, the number one daily sports podcast network? 
Locked On has a daily podcast on every NBA and NFL team, plus a growing lineup of college and MLB teams. You get a daily bite-sized podcast giving you the latest on your team from the local experts. Lakers fans, search Locked On Lakers. Cowboys fans, search Locked On Cowboys. Just search Locked On, your favorite team, on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, or tell your smart speaker to play podcast Locked On, your favorite team. Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.